Hi, and welcome to the Fishing Matters podcast, discussing all things angling from a New Zealand point of view. This is sponsored by The Complete Angler. Let's get on with the show. Well, I'd like to welcome you along today to our podcast. I'm very excited because I'm with a, a man who I've just met today, but boy, he is so interesting on fishery science. And we want to talk about the salmon fishery. His name is Rasmus Gabrielson, and he works currently with the Cawthorn Institute in, uh, in Nelson area. And I tell you what, he is so interesting on the area of salmon and what they're up to. Now, most of you here who are listening to this will probably have an interest in salmon fishing. And of course, the South Island has been really noted on a worldwide scale for its salmon fishing. So we're very grateful to have someone who can help us just tell us what's going along. So um, I'm just wondering if you can give us a little bit of uh, the salmon history that's going on here, Erasmus, and help us on our way. Sure. Uh, thanks, Malcolm. Um, so uh, I guess the salmon fishery in the South Island is quite quite a special fishery because it's a product of an introduction. And it was actually, as far as I'm aware, the first successful introduction of sea-run salmon, Chinook salmon, outside of its native home range. Um, there's been quite a lot of introductions of trout and salmon all over the world, and wherever the Englishmen went, salmon and trout tended to be tried to be introduced, but most of the time those failed. Trout were not a problem, but salmon were very difficult. It's, it's a funny thing, it's, it's difficult to establish sea-run populations, and New Zealand was the first successful attempt of Pacific salmon. So um, what we had here is, is quite a cool situation where eventually when populations are established they spread and locally adapted to their rivers and became this sort of wonderful resource that most of us uh, enjoy and love. Hmm. Well of course I've come into the salmon fishing game uh, in the 80s in a, in a big way and we were pretty blessed then. There seemed to be a lot more salmon around then than what there are now. Could you give us a bit of a background as to what might have caused that and uh, where it's sort of gone from there? Sure. Um, so through the, the 1980s or from the late 70s to the sort of mid 90s there was a huge period of about 20 years of active ocean ranching ventures. Mm -hmm. This is when government and private industry was funding an enormous amounts of releases of salmon smolt, those one-year-old fish, um, sending out to sea to try and kind of grow a commercial business. There was always this idea of, of creating an industry, I suppose. And I guess that's what's why salmon was introduced to start with. There was this idea of starting up canton factories and, and I, you know, having this as a commercial product. And through those 20 years, like you're talking about the golden boom mm. years um, that my father-in-law and others kind of fished and remember fondly, and we had all those releases and they produced a really good return. Um, but as that became more and more uneconomic, they tailored off and we were back to what was beforehand the basis, a wild fishery. Mm. Um, so that's, that kind of explains um, the big change in focus, I guess. Right. Well, I can remember uh, when it came to the mid-90s, there was a sudden drop-off right after sort of 96, 97, where there just didn't seem to be so many fish around. But there seemed to be a bit of a change in the political spectrum and the way that uh, salmon were viewed by government organisations, because prior to that, of course, there'd been a very big uh, research project set up, and we had Glenarif Hatchery and uh, various other organisations that were busy studying salmon. Uh, how big an effect did that have on terms of the returns or how big an effect did they have when they were releasing obviously quite a number of fish into the uh, wild environment? Right, so um, I guess 
to answer that question, you have to think about a couple of basic things around salmon biology. So first of all, um, it's important to appreciate that salmon as a species are, are a really amazing creature. They have this sort of uh, life cycle where they're born in a place, they eventually go to the ocean at some age when they're ready, and then they come back, and they come back to the same place where they were born. Uh, we call it uh, in the science terms that they're homing back to their home stream. Mm -hmm. And this gives them an advantage. It allows them to sort of locally adapt and kind of specialize in the time of the year when they spawn, when they hatch, when they go to the ocean to have perfect timing with the local environment. And this is the key to their sort of success and resilience. And you can appreciate that some rivers, maybe on the west coast, will be slightly different from rivers on the east coast, right. north to south and so forth. So this is really an important local adaptation to kind of be in perfect tune with your conditions. Now, when we have large-scale mass hatchery releases from those commercial ventures through the 80s, that would have um, swamped the wild populations with a bunch of fish that were not as specialized to those local conditions, and it would have created some disturbance, uh, some some um, uh, interbreeding and it would have made it more difficult for the wild fish to kind of carry on through. Um, but as you turn that off, obviously, you know, things have an opportunity to go back to their previous stage. But I think from what I've read and understood from the scientists that were working on it then, and this was a big government funded program, what is today the Niwa Institute here in Christchurch. Mm. Uh, and they kind of acknowledged that this was probably happening. And there's some good evidence from overseas that this can, over time, have some detrimental effects. So this is one of the reasons. It's also important to recognize that the 80s in particular, uh, 80s and early 90s, were an exceptional period of really good ocean survival, mm. um, not just in New Zealand, but in other places as well. So we had the perfect storm of a large number of fish being produced for these commercial ventures mm. with good survival. It all comes together. Mm. And if you have that, you get large numbers of fish coming back, and that can actually make it really, really uh, impactful of having those dilution effects on mm. wild populations. And I think that's probably what we saw. So when we came into the early 2000s, uh, we had a period of not good ocean conditions, right. late 90s, and we've had that for quite some time. We've had a couple of blips of good periods here, mm. um, but most of the time, We've had poor ocean conditions, destabilized populations, and kind of living still with this legacy mm. from that 20-year period of releasing fish. Okay, so from an angler's point of view, and I was one of those who just loved the 80s and the 90s. I mean, some of the fishing days we had was just legendary. And I know I sound like some sort of old codger now because I go on remember back into 1995 and 96. I remember when, and we talk about this astounding fishery that was available there. I think the other thing that quite um, surprised me is certainly into 95 and 96, there was many, many big fish. Why would you think that would be? Is that really a product of the fact that the ocean conditions were so good or was it because the fish were coming back later? And how does that relate to what we're doing today? It's hard to know for sure, but um, it's quite likely there's a bit of both. So definitely um, we used to have, if you look at the old reports from the late 50s and the early 60s, prior to ocean ranching ventures, yeah. we had a much more broad population base. We had uh, a large number of three-year-olds, uh, a reasonable proportion, 10 to 15 to 20% in some rivers, of four-year-old fish and some two-year-olds, but quite a small percentage. Right. Today, we have 
a large proportion of two-year-old fish. Mm -hmm. In some rivers, it's high as 30 plus percent. Um, and a broad base of 33-year-old fish and hardly any four-year-old fish at all. Mm -hmm. And so that's changed the dynamics of the demographic, the population structure. Um, and so obviously, if you're not in the ocean for as long, you can't grow as big. We also don't have as good ocean conditions today um, for growing fish. Salmon are a cold water species, so they tend to do well when the ocean is at the right temperature range for them. And when it gets really, really hot, they tend to not do so well. Uh, and now we have kingfish and snapper mm. and uh, other more tropical species across large areas in South Island. Mm. So it's not rocket science to figure out that when you have kingfish off of the Waimakariri mouth, salmon aren't going to do as well as when the conditions are cooler. Mm, mm. So that, that's part of the story. But, you know, the ocean conditions aren't something we can do all that much about. Right. But we can do something about is how we harvest our populations, how we look at saving certain subpopulations that tend to have more four-year-olds than others. Okay. And so, you know, if you want to change that, you can look at your regulations, you can look at trying to promote a redistribution of the age structure. Right, okay. When I look at places like, say, the West Coast, for example, they'd be probably subject to the same sort of uh, temperature rises in the ocean, and yet, in many ways, their populations seem a little bit more stable than what they are uh, on the, the East Coast. Are there any particular reasons why that would be so that you would know? Well, I think, I think it's interesting. So we don't have a huge number of good monitoring data sets on our salmon populations. We've got a couple from mainly the larger East Coast rivers, mm -hmm. but there's, there's some population monitoring on the West Coast and some from the other smaller rivers. When you look at it as a scientist, you see that the big rivers, the traditionally the Rakaia, the Rangitata, the Waitaki, that were the Waimak, that were kind of the, the bulk of the resource, they seem to be doing really poorly now. They're all trending on a similar cycle, so they do the same thing. Some of the smaller rivers are actually doing way better proportionally than they used to, and um, anglers are voting with their feet, and they're putting the pressure on these places. And one of the possibilities for why that might be is that we've been mucking around a lot with the big rivers. Mm -hmm. We haven't been doing that with the small rivers, so they've had a chance to restabilize themselves from this 20-year ocean ranching venture. Whereas we haven't given the big rivers a break, possibly. Mm. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> salmon in particular, but wild fisheries and wild game management in general, it's not, it's not a simple thing. If anybody mm. tells you it's super simple and they have all the answers, chances are it's probably wrong. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah well, it sounds pretty, pretty complex. And, of course, from an angler's point of view, what we're interested in is identifying what's gone wrong and then trying to correct it because I guess we would love to get back to those glory days that we once had. Um, I know there's various factors involved in, in a salmon's life cycle. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about you know, what happens from uh, the times that they are up the rivers and in, in a brief form, what they do at sea, what their risks are in all those places and what actually makes a, a good salmon population come back for us to harvest. For a salmon population to be really vibrant and thriving and be viable and, and sort of growing all the time, yep. they need to have a range of strategies, a diversity of strategies, so that in any given year, if you have a certain flood in spring, it doesn't wipe out all the fish, or if the ocean conditions at some point become really hot, it doesn't hit all of those fish. And, and so 
to do that, salmon tend to sort of spread themselves out and spawn in a variety of places. You'll have some fish that go all the way up to the headwaters, those cold spring-fed systems, and you'll have some fish that spawn in the mid part of the catchment and mm -hmm. some very lower down in small side creeks or main stems. And those fish all have a different kind of life history, a different strategy. Some go to the ocean early, some go to the ocean late, some stay there longer, some stay there shorter. And as a as a group, as a whole population, all these small subpopulations, they kind of build resilience by, by having a portfolio of options. Mm. Um, it's like when you're investing in the stock market. Um, if you think about it, it would be not such a great idea to put all your eggs in one basket. It might pay off a big time if you're right, but chances are you'll be mostly wrong. Yeah. So populations are the same. They will um, do best if they have a variety of strategies and in any given year, even if most of them don't come through, there'll be enough to kind of take the big booms and busts out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're thinking about things that you can do to manage your populations, you should try and maintain that diversity. You should be uh, worried if everything starts looking the same. Okay, now I'm interested in the, the ability of a salmon to be able to adapt to its environment because Really, salmon on a, on a broad scale haven't been in New Zealand that long, have they? No. So their ability to go into different parts of the river, even come back at different times, is something pretty unique to that species, isn't it? They're actually quite a super species in this area. Yeah, it's an amazing ability. It's actually kind of the key characteristic that makes them such a, a unique um, animal, right, that they can locally adapt. So if you take them from one place mm -hmm. and put them somewhere else mm -hmm. and give them enough time, they will throw out a variety of strategies and then some fish born at a certain time going to the ocean at another time they'll do a little bit better than others and so they'll come back they'll be a bit more successful and um, they'll breed more offspring and the system will kind of self-perpetuate right. um, and that's the process of local adaptation through natural selection kind of the this sort of approach of how most species evolve um, now salmon are really fast at doing this and it's why they're so successful and it's also why in New Zealand we've got this amazing salmon farming industry growing. Mm -hmm. They're using that ability just like we do with other domesticated animals to make a really good product. Mm -hmm. But we've got to realize that that's becoming quite a different animal from the wild salmon that they were. Mm -hmm. Just like in North America they'll have five different species of Pacific salmon that are all sort of adapted and they're slightly different. Pink salmon don't look the same as sockeye salmon. They don't look the same as coho salmon and chinook mm -hmm. and, and they're all different from European Atlantic salmon. Mm -hmm. So it's all, all about specialization. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you talked before about the fact that they might come back as two, three or four year old fish. Uh, and you said that recently many more are coming back as two and three-year-old fish is that a concern would, would you prefer to see it go the other way i know that most anglers like to catch big fish i remember yeah you know, the, the big fish were the ones that always got us excited well totally um so so i'm a keen angler myself that's right. why i got into this field of uh, fishery science and uh, because because i was interested and asked mm. questions um, and i guess um i think i think Yes, totally. You want to make sure that you get a chance to have more older fish yep. uh, because anglers value bigger fish. Bigger fish are also uh, more important to the population because they have bigger eggs, more mm -hmm. eggs. And it's not just the number of eggs, but because the eggs individually are bigger, they have a more sustenance for, yeah, for yeah. the offspring, right? Mm -hmm. They get a bit of start in life. They, they can dig them into better places. 
um, uh, because they're bigger, they can spawn in, in, in better habitats, etc. So uh, there's a lot of advantage of being really careful with, with big fish. Um, and with any animal populations, when you harvest it heavily, you tend to, the tendency is for fish to get smaller over time. Okay. You've seen that in commercial fisheries, mm. you see that in species like moose and elk mm. that have been hunted for trophies. Mm. And so, so you, as, as a management agency, they need to kind of keep this in mind and keep this in tune. It's also a product of, of hatchery supplementation that tends to, because they're so adaptable, mm. these species, uh, they tend to change pretty quickly if you put them in the hatchery environment. Okay. Within one or two generations, they can become quite different. It's just their sort of built-in process of trying to, to adapt to this new environment that they live in. Uh, and that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. So you've got to know how to work with it. So uh, there's a lot of things for these managers um, to keep in mind when they think about how to best enhance and manage wild population. Yeah. Well, we're all very aware of the of the decline, and I know that what we're trying to do is, you know, obviously arrest it, and I'm sure that everybody's that's in this wonderful game of, of, of you know, looking at fish, because let's face it, they're a fantastic species, and, and you know, we're such, we're so blessed in this country. I mean, we've got this amazing resource on our, on our fingertips, and sometimes I think that the naysayers are out there um, trying to, you know, write it completely down. Well, um, my experience with biological populations is that with something as highly adaptive of salmon is that they'll probably come back in, in the long run if we're, you know maybe our interference is, is part of the problem rather than necessarily part of the solution I know that I've, there are various theories out there um, regarding you know whether we should interfere or not interfere and one of the concerns that I've had is that you've said that the hatchery fish are quickly modifying to the requirements that are put on them therefore if they go in and mix with a wild fishery that is now uh, adapting to all sorts of little microcosms within what it's doing, uh, could that have a, 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 a sort of negative effect on the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's some really good um, evidence from overseas, but also from New Zealand on this, right? So I think most people who are really passionate and interested in fisheries and salmon in particular would have seen lots of this stuff come out of Europe yep. and North America. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been a real awakening in the last 15 years uh, years particularly around the potential negative effects of hatcheries run in a, in a way that doesn't match the wild fish right and um, so you can definitely you can think about hatcheries like this they uh, provide you an opportunity to boost the population and enhance uh, it's very difficult and super expensive to have hatcheries provide the base of a resource right right uh, you'd basically have to have more or less limitless resources financially. Yeah. Um, so in our situation in New Zealand, the wild fishery always has to be the basis okay. of the resource. Um, now hatcheries can do some enhancement, but hatcheries can unfortunately also be a really effective mechanism for unrolling some of those local adaptations mm. of wild fish. Mm. And so now, when we're in a cycle of the very lowest returns that we've had, Yes. through a long period of records uh, you've got to be a bit cautious that you don't put unnecessary pressure on those few remaining wild fish mm. you've got harvest you've got habitat pressures you've got the ocean condition maybe being a bit warmer than they like and you have to give them a chance to come back and so adding something else on top that might interfere with that recovery that that's not always a good thing okay. so in some cases maybe taking hands off might mm. actually be mm. the most 
appropriate approach. Mm, mm, okay, because I think sometimes we oversimplify it and just think, oh, we'll just chuck out a heap more, we'll be right. Like it's going back to, to the investment that the government made back in the 80s and the 90s. But uh, I heard some very high figures um, that were about the, the cost of that program. Yeah, um, so I guess I, I looked at some of the data that was put out together with a New Zealand salmon scientist, Martin Unwin, that, yes. that did some of the work back in the 80s and 90s. And we wrote a report looking at um, what had been done and how to kind of learn from those lessons moving forward. Hmm. And um, basically over that 20 year period from the late 70s to the mid 90s, it was about 50 million salmon smolt released. Hmm. Now, if you think about these costing as one to three dollars a pop, depending on how you produce them, yeah. that is a phenomenal amount of money. It is indeed. And in, in, in one year, six million were released in that one year alone. Oh. And this is just over a handful of rivers. Mm, mm. Um, obviously, that's something that it's we can't... It's unsustainable. Well, we can't afford that no, today because, you know, there's only so many anglers out there, there's only so many licensed dollars, and, and the management agency has to do a large number of different things. Yep. Um, and it might not even be a good thing. Like I said, we have to be open to the possibility that one of the key problems we have mm -hmm. is that, that that commercial venture might have, to some degree, destabilized some of our big core populations. Right. Um, so moving forward, we need to recognize that the world isn't the same place as it was yeah. in the 80s. Uh, these fish need to be given a chance to adapt to the new conditions. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that whatever populations we have left, that they're healthy, mm -hmm. that they have an opportunity to rebound when the conditions come back. And, and I like to think about it like this. Um, we've got these sockeye salmon in some of our southern lakes. Mm -hmm. And when I came here from Sweden in the 90s, they were basically written off as a functionally extinct species. Right. right? They've come back in mass. There's about 40,000, they estimate now. Mm. Um, and that's phenomenal mm. from having mm. been basically totally gone. Mm. Well, obviously, they've responded to some environmental conditions that they really like. Yep. Given half a chance, our wild sea run salmon will do the same thing. Mm. We just have to, we have to put the basic building blocks in place right. to give them a chance to do that. So it sounds to me like wild salmon are gold. And then it comes down to how do we get more wild salmon in that position where they're reproducing uh, how should future management go with regards to, for example, looking at the number of fish that are caught? I mean, should anglers be backing off? Should we be regulated to back off? I know there's mooted changes coming through uh, in the system. Do you think that they're beneficial? Uh, and you know, what do you see as a longer term answer to get more wild fish up there? Because I've also heard the other side of the argument that is if you get too many wild fish there, then they start eating each other out of house and home and they're basically lost to the system and they're lost anyway. So, you know, there's obviously critical uh, mass that's got to be involved there. Would you like to, to comment on yeah, a bit of that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so Fishing Game as a management agency here in New Zealand are going through this process right now where they're right. looking at different options, which is a really, really good thing. And, and to be honest, it's well overdue. It yep. should have been done a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But looking forward, they're putting and proposing a system in place that is um, looking at an adaptive management regime right. that is, I guess, responding to the needs of the fish, right. which is great. Yeah. And this is totally the right place to, to go. Um, and there's no doubt that you know we need to let enough fish survive of the right type of the fish mm -hmm. so that we've got a chance to get a new generation. Yep. Basically, you reap what you sow. Yep. So if we don't leave enough fish 
to go up there, we're not going to get the return. Mm -hmm. Now, at some point, people are right, there might be too many fish and you don't need all of those fish. Mm. We're not going to be in that space for a very long time. Fair enough. So uh, I think the maximum runs recorded that I've heard of were in the sort of low 20,000 fish. Mm -hmm. And that was probably a time when you had 25,000 fish spawning. Yeah, maybe, maybe you had more than you needed. But now we're in the hundreds to the low thousands. Yeah. It's definitely not that mm -hmm. place. So, uh, so we all need to take a cut and it's, it's classic. Um, like anybody else, you know, I don't want to be over-regulated, but uh, we all need to contribute, whether you like to hunt uh, or fish in the high country, in the middle river, or at the mouth. I think everybody needs to do their bit. Sometimes people think, fix them, not me, but you've got you to all contribute. And, and the way forward for that, the best way is probably a seasonal bag limit mm -hmm. rather than looking at other options. Okay, fine. And if we were to look into the long term then of, of where we're going to go, and let's say that we do start to really take note of, of what are the critical factors in, in good fisheries management, do you see the salmon fishing salmon fishery becoming stable and again back to what it was in terms of you know self-viable without quite so much in the way of human in interference or is that just taking it a bridge too far and no no i definitely think it's got every opportunity to to become back basically we're going to get what we deserve so mm -hmm. we get um what we make yes that's definitely true it's true with the environment mm -hmm. as far as the country we live in and how we treat the land and the rivers. It's true with our animal populations, whether they're, they're tar or deer or ducks or, or salmon or trout, um, you know. Um, so we have got every opportunity to look forward and put a system in place. It'll take some time yep. to bring back. It's unrealistic to expect that, you know, this can happen overnight, mm. especially with the way that the ocean conditions are at the moment. Mm. Um, Salmon, most of them are three-year-olds when they spawn, which means that for one generation cycle to kind of rotate, you need to wait for three years to get the product of that back. Um, so if we want to rebuild our populations, we need to take a long-term view. Yep. And I think, I think from that perspective, I would encourage anglers, if they're really passionate about salmon fishing and fishing in general, mm -hmm. to take a long, hard look at themselves and their friends and say, well, what is it that we value? Mm -hmm. Why do we want to keep this? Mm -hmm. Is it just a piece of meat? Is that all they are for us to divide up and put in the freezer? Or are they a lifestyle? Are they something that we value way more than just the food value of it? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then if you do catch that four-year-old fish and it mm -hmm. happens to be a female, mm -hmm. that would be the fish to put back. Mm -hmm. That would be the fish to carefully unhook and let go. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you catch that two-year-old fish, well, that's definitely the fish, especially if it's a male, to knock on the head. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like game bird harvest. Yep. People tend to want to harvest the males a bit more and let the females go. The female has a more vital function mm. uh, than, than the male in that sense. But you also need to recognize that we can't all expect to have open access to the resource all the time. Um, we need to kind of take our fair share and no more. Uh, and as a group, if there's too many salmon anglers, it doesn't matter even if we all try and cut back a little bit, it might still be a little bit too much. Mm. And so we need to encourage and give the, the management agency the chance to kind of work with what they've got. Mm. And looking forward, we should appreciate and embrace 
the opportunities that we have in other places, mm. right? Salmon used to be, when I came here, a harvest fishery. Mm-hmm. We'd knock them on the head, we'd bottle them, mm-hmm. we'd enjoy it, and it was a whole culture and a tradition built around mm-hmm. that. That's mm-hmm. great. Today, we can't look at it like that. Mm-hmm. That is not going to come back in the short term. Mm-hmm. But there are other fisheries. We have lake fisheries that are doing very well. We have canal fisheries that mm-hmm. are phenomenal. Maybe we need to look at those in different mm-hmm. lights. And so, you know, we have to spread the load. Nothing is ever constant. We have to kind of readjust the way we think about it. I'm very interested in the idea of us catching and releasing salmon. I come from a trout fishing background as well as a salmon fishing background. And in the early days when I used to release salmon in front of people at the river mouths, there was this horrified look that all of a sudden this prized fish was going back. And yet to me it was just a very normal thing to do. Uh, a lot of prejudice sort of came and said that these things won't survive if they're released. Uh, perhaps your comments on that and whether you think there's a future in catch and release? A couple of things comes to mind. So first of all, definitely it's worth releasing the right type of fish. Right. So if you catch a fish that's extra old or like a female, she mm. might do really, really well and add to the population if you release it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's important to keep in mind that when you release a fish like a salmon, mm-hmm. it doesn't come at zero cost. Right. Um, this fish has come from the ocean and it needs to run a long way to spawn and, and make the next generation. And so if you catch it and fight it, you're sapping energy out of that fish. Mm-hmm. And just because you release it doesn't mean that it always 100% will survive. And while catch and release definitely has a place, and I think it goes hand in hand with us re-evaluating how we value these species, mm-hmm. these animals, mm-hmm. um, we should be really careful about encouraging sports fishing just for the fun of it that's taking a large number of fish that are halfway up a river or even in the headwaters mm-hmm. and you're sapping all the energy out of them because you might have really big impacts on the spawning success. Um, But definitely uh, as a means of selectively harvesting the right group Mm -hmm. of fish. So if you're only allowed to take four a season, well, why wouldn't you make those four the slightly younger fish, the ones that we don't want to keep in the population and, you know, Hmm. protect the ones that are older and and more valuable. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, I see that. Uh, how about if we were to put some of the efforts that some of the management has done in the past where they uh, release fish into, for example, Lurakaya River and might have a return rate for every thousand fish of uh, about one, maybe two? Would that be a fair comment? To sort of it's release? probably a bit on the high side. A bit on the high side, yeah. could be less than one. Yeah, so you yeah. take a thousand fish, you put them down the Lurakaya, you hope that one comes back with all the cost and the energy that's been put into it. If we took those same fish or fish similar to them and put them in the, uh, say, the canal fishery, which is essentially a pretty closed type of environment, do you think that that would be a, a viable way to give anglers a sense of, well, you know, if I need fish, if I want to catch some more of those fish, that they could be put there? Do you think that's a viable thing? Well, I think we've got a great example of that in New Zealand. We've got the Rutorua Lakes. Eastern Fishing Game run a very successful enhancement um, program on some of their lakes that are naturally really good growing environments for trout Mm -hmm. but the springs uh, creeks and the rivers that drain into them don't have good spawning habitat Mm. and so basically as i've understood it they they uh, in high flows in winter uh, become quickly sort of unstable and and the eggs don't survive well so they stock those lakes to to provide something that wouldn't be there otherwise Uh, the canals are a little bit in that same sense there's some there's some fish there obviously naturally there's some coming into the system and there's some escapees from the farms mm-hmm. uh, which provide a base resource but it's a very productive environment so if you added a few more fish 
that's definitely something to look at. Um, I don't think the work has been done on what size right. they should be and what that might cost and what the benefits are. So there'll be obviously a cost benefit. You know, it costs money to raise fish. How much do we get in return? How many survive? You wouldn't want to put them in too small. They might all kind of go through the turbines and leave. But um, definitely something to look at. Mm. In general, with enhancement, it's way easier to stock a lake or a canal system than it is to kind of put fish in a river that's got to go to the ocean and come back. Mm. That mortality is super high mm. in the ocean, various in a lake, it's not at all that high. So, yeah, no, definitely. That could be, for instance, a good way to balance the loss of opportunity yep. with the need to conserve and provide rehabilitation to salmon. Right. Well, I still think we're very, very happy and very blessed in New Zealand when you consider what the cost is to go out and to have a chance uh, and a very broad number of different fisheries. I mean, the reality is that if, if we lived in, in uh, the UK, for example, and we were going to have a, a beat of one mile um, on a good salmon river, um, that cost would be extremely high. And yet for here, for the price of a, of a licence, we still have that opportunity out there. And it comes down to, I guess, the value we put on it, the way we look at our, at our salmon. Uh, I grew up in a time where we looked at our salmon far more as easier to come by. And now that they've become rare I think we probably need to relook at it any any comments on, on that with regard to you know the value that you see still involved with salmon both as a scientist and as an angler uh, uh, I totally agree with that I think that's I, I heard you say there that you know you, you kind of come from a different background where yeah. you looked at it as a habitable resource mm. and 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 I grew up with something similar in Europe and I think a lot of Kiwis can relate to what you're saying mm. here right and, and a great example of that is kawai we used to mm. think of it as a nuisance mm. And when they got caught at the river mouths and they were just in the way because you were targeting salmon. Well, now, actually, having had a period where they were not abundant at all because of commercial harvest and they've come back, mm. many people, I think, appreciate that this is a wonderful resource, getting kids into fishing. They provide a base opportunity to catch something, take it home for a feed. Mm. So we should value it differently. And, and there are many other examples like that. And, and we need to keep asking ourselves, what is it we value? How do we treat it? How do we look after it? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, totally. Mm, seeing it through different eyes. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much, Erasmus, for coming and spending your time with us. I hope that uh, those of you who are watching or listening will find that uh, you've learned some stuff or at least yeah, challenge some of your thinking because um, we live in a magnificent country. We are so blessed to have so much on our doorstep. Uh, I still have that amazing ability to be able to hop on my vehicle and travel just a short distance and have all sorts of both hunting and fishing opportunities open to me. So thank you very much. Oh, no, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been great.